Thank you for listening to a special episode of the SoFlo Vegans podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to the SoFlo Vegans podcast. I'm your host and founder of SoFlo Vegans, Sean Russell. On this episode, we have Ingrid Newkirk. This is her second time on the SoFlo Vegans podcast, and we dug deep into her brand new book, as well as asking her questions about PETA, animal rights, and how everything is going right now in the midst of the pandemic. So really interesting interview. This actually took place during our expo back in April. So we're excited to present it to our audience and this episode yes it is sponsored by hungry harvest we want to thank them so much for believing in soflow vegans and our mission of making south florida a global hotspot for veganism so skip the store avoid the crowds and get farm fresh produce kitchen staples and vegan pantry items delivered right to your doorstep starting at just 15 dollars Every time you receive a harvest, you're contributing to the fight against food waste and hunger in our community. So get 50% off with code SOFLOW, that's S-O-F-L-O, at HungryHarvest.net. You are listening to the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. So let's, we have a tradition at the SoFlow Vegans Podcast. And what we do is we ask our guests to tell us how they got started on their vegan journey. I don't think I got around uh, around to asking that the last time that we spoke with each other. So in, in honor of that tradition, we would love to know how did you first get started? Um, you know, what seeds were planted for you to go down this path? Well, you know, I um, was a very slow learner. And so I have um, a lot of understanding for people who don't get it initially. Uh, it took me a while. I grew up with a father who was a gourmand, and together we basically ate our way through the animal kingdom. And I have to tell you that when I was about 20, 19 or 20, liver and onions, I would go anywhere for it and I would use raw steak and put a raw egg in it and mix it up and eat it. So I am not somebody who grew up as a vegan or a vegetarian or anything near that, but a series of events changed me. And it was one at a time. The very first thing was snails. I used to eat snails <laughs> and I bought, I'm a bad cook, but I bought some live snails in a market, this Italian market. They said, oh, they're easy. You can just take them home, you soak them overnight, and then you saute them in some Chablis and garlic. And I thought, well, I can do that. So I had them in a paper bag in my car. I was driving through the countryside to my house and I got the feeling I was being watched and I thought, there's no one here. I looked over and the snails had forced open and they do this. In my book, I talk about this in another way. But they came to the top of the bag and had pushed open the uh, top. And they were all up there looking at me <laughs> with their little horns, you know, looking. 
So I took them and let them go in the bottom of my garden. Oh, that's nice. I probably violated some federal law, but I wasn't going to eat them. So that was the end of snails. Next came lobsters. Somebody took me for this gorgeous dinner for my birthday. I think I was 19 in Philadelphia, a lobster restaurant. And they brought two lobsters to their three to the table on a silver platter alive. And you had to pick your lobster. And I did. And the lobsters were waving their antennae at you. And I said, I'll have that one. And they said, broiled or boiled? And back then, I was so oblivious. I had no idea that if you say broiled in a restaurant like that, they slit open the live lobster's back, put it, butter all through it, salt and pepper, and shove it under the grill. Oh, wow. And so I said broiled. That lobster came back. We were having a great time. We had some beautiful wine. And it was a, a lovely event. I took that first bite of lobster and something must have triggered, something must have hit me subconsciously. I burst into tears mm. because I realized the only method of communication those lobsters had was to waggle their antennae. They didn't speak English. They don't have voices like anybody else. And I had taken his life for my birthday. So that was the end of all shellfish, all, all mollusks. That is gone. And the next thing, I'll just leave you with the one because this is the slow learner story. I was a law enforcement officer in Maryland. Oh. And I went to a farm where the people had moved away and they had left the animals behind. And the animals had starved. They had had a party and they had had broken glass in the stalls and the animals were cut up, but they were all dead except for one little pig. And I took that little pig outside and I put his head under the water pump and held up his head so he could drink. And he made these little sounds of gratitude. That's all you can say. And then I sent him off to the veterinarian. I was going to prosecute those people for failure to pay rent, for abandonment, and so on. Driving home that night, and this was before we had microwave ovens, I thought, oh, I'm starving. What have I got to eat? And I thought, oh, great. I defrosted the pork chops. No. <laughs> and then, you know, ding, ding, ding. I thought, hang on a minute. I'm going to prosecute those people for what they did to that little pig. And yet I know in my heart, and now I know with my eyes from later, I know in my heart, as we all do, that a slaughterhouse is a hideous place and the pork chops came from a slaughterhouse, from a pig mm. who couldn't have wanted to die. So that really was the beginning of that. And later somebody razzed me terribly and said, what are you putting in your tea? And every morning I had a cup of tea with condensed milk in it. Mm. And I said, it's condensed milk. And he said, well, you don't eat veal, do you? And I said, no, of course not. I would never take a baby cow away from his mother for veal. And he said to me, so how do you think you get the milk? 
Don't you have to take away the baby cow? Isn't there a bit of veal in every glass or drop of milk? And I said, but they don't kill the cow, do they? They don't kill the cow. You know, you hear that. Mm-hmm. And I said it. Oh, how mortifying. <laughs> <laughs> and today, if someone says that to me, I always say, oh, really? Where is this massive retirement home for cows? Because I've never seen one. You know, they all get kicked and prodded down the ramp to their deaths, the same as the beef cow does, except those mother cows are in worse condition. So that was the end of the milk. Wow. <laughs> so it seems like every every step of the way, there is this connection to an actual living being that made you, you know, quit that particular type of um, eating that type of animal. So my question to you is, with everything that you just said, take us into the creation of PETA, because that's a story that I don't often hear. So how did you go from having all of these <laughs> revelations to saying, I want to, you know, be one of the co-founders of, of actually, you know, I'm sure you could have forecasted of where it would have gone when you first started, but let's just say, I'm going to start something that, you know, is going to be for the protection of these animals. So t- t- take us through that. It was definitely because of these experiences and more. Um, I thought, you know, I grew up loving animals. I really would say that because I adored the dog who was in my house when I was born and who I grew up with. His name was Shawnee. We did everything together. He was like my brother. Um, You know, I could feel what he was feeling. He could feel what I was feeling. I slept in his bed. He slept in my bed. We both went in the car and got car sick at the same time. We would always just be ready at the same time. My mother would stop the car. Um, But I didn't realize how animals are treated. I'd never been to a factory farm. I'd never seen inside a laboratory until much later. And that was another experience I had that woke me up. Um, I'd never done any of these things that took you behind the scenes to where Animals are caught in steel traps to make a fur coat or something. But as my experiences grew, and I did actually find when I was a law enforcement officer, two steel traps set behind a 7-Eleven. And these young kids had bought them. They're just, you know, $3 a piece. Excuse me. And I set them out there and they caught a fox and they caught a squirrel. And I'd always had a fur coat since I was 19. So that was another revelation. And I thought, if I love animals and I've had all these revelations, there must be lots of people like me who just don't know. So I should start a group and make sure they can see what they're supporting and give them the alternatives. And so Peter was started with that in mind. And and how did Peter like, <laughs> this was the, the, the early 80s, like what was the time frame? It was 1980, actually, exactly 1980. So we're 40 this year, and I'm 70. Look at those wrinkles. <laughs> well, congratulations on, on the, the milestone of reaching 40 years for PETA. And how did it look back then? Because obviously we didn't have the technology, oh. the, communicate, the way to communicate right now. So how did you get the word out, and how did you slowly begin to build it? That's an excellent question, because people who are 20 today would just 
laugh themselves silly as to what we had to do. Of course, there was no internet. Mm -hmm. There were no answering machines. There were no fax machines. There were no mobile phones. There was nothing like that. So you had to basically hand draw things, type things, cut and paste things, make your own leaflets, have them printed at a printer, and go out somewhere where people were gathering and hand them out individually. And then, much as today, you had to try hard to get into the press. And it was mostly newspapers then, or radio shows. There were some talk shows initially. And people were more inclined to give you time to discuss the issue. Today, things are a sound bite. They're like this and they're gone. But it really was, if you wanted to telephone someone, they had to be home or you couldn't reach them. <laughs> so it was painstaking. And we came out with our first newsletter. We put it in the mail and we sent it out. And we just talked to each other, had work parties. That was it. And right now, um, there's been, a, especially last year, last year, and I'm sure you felt it was a huge year for um, veganism, just as far as the awareness that was getting out there, especially in the mainstream press and what have you. But um, how have you, what are some of the milestones that you would point to for PETA over the years um, that you were, I know we watched a few earlier, but like some of the big milestones that you would want to showcase. Well, the little video earlier was just the last three months. Wow. So that tells you every day we win something. We're coming out with these this week's victories on the next on Monday. And I think some of them will knock your socks off. Of course, at the moment we are very, very caught up in trying to get in animals into the stories about the pandemic. But for me, I think the biggest one is not very sexy but it's the fact that we were able to put together the biggest youth movement of any social movement that ever has existed. And because the kids have got to come in, the college students, the young people, the children, I mean, they are the Greta Thunbergs. Uh, there are lots of them, the Greta Thunbergs of the animal rights movement. You may not know them by name, although some of you know Genesis and people like that, who are just fabulous. So building that was so important. And we have Peter too, and we have Peter Kids, and we now have um, the SOS, which is Stop Our Supremacism, Stop Our Speciesism Youth Campaign. It's all youth driven. If you ask me about concrete cases, I would say in 1981, we got the first conviction ever in the United States of an animal experimenter for cruelty to animals uh -huh. and the first search warrant that allowed animals to be taken out of the lab, 17 rhesus monkeys who had their backs operated on and their arms rendered immobile and who were kept in terrible conditions. We got them all out and we got the experimenter convicted. A little while later, we stopped head injury experiments at the University of Pennsylvania, conducted for to test crash helmets on baboons. And then we stopped all the car companies in the world from using animals like pigs and baboons 
in car crash tests, which is why you see the mannequins. We talked about this before, I think, on your show, is why we see the mannequins, um, the crash test dummies in the commercials now is because Peter stopped those hideous animal tests that all the car companies except Mercedes did all over the world. Wow. So behind the scenes of a lot of the things that we've seen was Peter was like, so what exactly is that you do um, <laughs> behind the scenes when you're, so you're putting out these calls? Like, can you take us a little bit into that process of, of what um, PETA is actually doing behind the scenes? Yes, we have different departments that do different things. But if we find, for example, a company, whether it's a household product company or it's a car company, whatever it is, if we find that they're doing something cruel to animals, then we first write a letter to them. We go to the top and we write a letter and say, we've discovered you're doing this. Here are the alternatives, which our research department looks into very carefully. We have 19 scientists on staff. We have a coronavirus researcher on staff, oncologists, you name it. So nanotechnologists. So we know, we do our homework. We come out with the alternative to the cruel thing. We write the letter, we phone them up and we try to meet. In the old days, that door was slammed in our face over and over again. Nowadays, many companies are a little bit too nervous. They know it's Peter. Peter could do something. Mm -hmm. So they often will meet with us. And when they meet with our scientists, we'll show them a better way. And we'll show them the economic advantages, the public relations advantages, and the ethical advantages. But a lot of companies say, no, the Iditarod, that hideously cruel dog race in Alaska. Uh, we've met with them, but they ain't budging right now. Mm. And so you saw in the video, we just got Alaska Airlines to withdraw its sponsorship. We've had um, Chrysler withdraw its sponsorship, an investment company withdraw its sponsorship. And we go to all the sports shows and we say, don't you dare show the Iditarod because 150 dogs have died in that race. And that's something they won't tell you, but we will. And here is all the information and here's our undercover investigation and we'll win. It's just, they're gonna fight us and we're gonna fight back, but good is on our side and tenacity is our middle name and we're gonna win. And we're gonna, I wanna get back into so many questions I have in regards to PETA and just as an organization that that's, how what drives me you know to see the inner workings but people listening right now let's go into the book the animal kind book and talk a little bit about what inspired you to write this book at this time um, let's start with that and then we'll go a little bit into what's inside of the book well you know it's i always do the the, the uh, subtitle because that pretty much sums it up <laughs> Animal kind, remarkable discoveries about animals, that's part one, and revolutionary new ways to show them compassion is the second half. I wrote it because I'm fascinated with everything animals do. Um, their emotional lives, their communication abilities, their parenting skills, their intelligence, 
the fact they have to pay so much attention to human beings because human beings control every facet of their lives. You know, they either hide in the woods because we've put a road and a shopping mall there, or they wait at the door to see if you'll let them out to do their business. They have to pay attention. And I thought there are lots of people who might read a story here or they might pick up something from their cat at home, but there are so many things that are jaw-dropping about animals. I'm gonna write a book, it's for our 40th anniversary, going to write a book that makes people go, wow, I didn't know that. And then because they know who animals are and how incredible they are, the second part would be, and here's what you can do about it. And, and it's it's interesting how that sort of mirrors your experience, what you were telling us earlier about how from the from the um, snails to the to the lobster, like making that connection. And this book sort of does that in a way where you get to learn more about the personal characteristics and traits of these animals, and then the um, what to do about it. So, can you? I know you obviously you want to read the book to see hear all the stories, but is there are there any stories or any <laughs> examples? At least one example you can share with us. Well, there are hundreds in the book, so I'm not in any danger of giving all the secrets away. And I do hope people will enjoy it. Um, it's written in a very positive way. There are so many. Um, I didn't realize that dogs, for example, I knew they had enormous sensory capabilities. And I knew that they can actually smell biochemical changes in your body so that they can know if you're about to have an epileptic seizure or if you have a cancer somewhere. I didn't know that they were being used by law enforcement officers nowadays to sniff out thumb drives that might be hidden in a metal box and put in a steel cabinet by child pornographers. Mm. I knew that they can, the average dog in your home knows 300 words without ever being taught one. And that's pretty good when you think we don't know even one of theirs. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I learned a lot about dogs and their sense of smell. When you take them outside, you mustn't hurry them. Those bushes that they're smelling, it's their internet. You know, that's how they pick up the news of who went by, whether they were sick, whether they were well, what was going on with them, and all sorts of things about dogs. But I learned things about elephants I didn't know. They too have an incredible sense of smell. That trunk is so versatile too. They can pick up a paper clip with that trunk. They can entwine it around another elephant they haven't seen for years and they've missed and they love. They can get their baby out of a hole with that, with that trunk mm -hmm. and they can use it when they swim. And most elephants, of course, are, if they're in the circus or a zoo, they never get to swim. But elephants are natural swimmers. And in places like Sri Lanka, if they are loose along the side of the water, they will jump in joyously. <laughs> and they could swim for 30 miles. And they'll stick that trunk above the water like this as a snorkel as they go along. And of course, they communicate subsonically a mile or two away from one herd to another. And it's not just that the other elephants so far away 
know, oh, somebody's rumbling over there. They know what it is. It's language. Mm. So if there's a drought, they know that those elephants are saying, we found water. Or if someone's capturing the babies, which they do, to send to China to a wildlife park, those elephants who are rumbling through the earth to the other elephants are saying, stay away. They're taking our children. Mm. So there are so many things. It's just huge. So you said there's hundreds of stories in the book. You went over a few of them, the elephants, the dogs. So what are what's the story or what's a situ- something that took you by surprise that you were um you were shocked when you realized the information <laughs> uh, i i am not surprised that animals are so clever but i will tell you a couple of things because you know pigeons are much derided people call them oh rats with wings and i like to call rats birds without wings or mm. birds with tails um, the pest species are so put down when they're just trying to eke out an existence. But a male pigeon and a female pigeon, both of them make milk in their crop for their baby. Mm -hmm. And if you see two pigeons together and one pigeon has their beak down the other pigeons, they could be kissing because they're very sensuous. Mm -hmm. They marry their high school sweetheart and they're with them at the end of their life. So they could be kissing but they also could be one or the other of the parents feeding their baby. Mm. And they are so loyal. They take turns taking care of the kids. And they really do. They, they equal out the time. Um, all birds are like that. Uh, there's a, a story about two storks in Croatia. And uh, one, uh, that you know, they fly from, from this little village in Croatia down to South Africa every year, thousands of miles. Every winter they go down there, every summer they come back, except this pair, only the male goes because the female was shot by a hunter and she can't fly. She was rescued by a teacher. He helped make a beautiful nest for her on the roof of his house. He winters her over inside his house every winter and every spring she goes back on the nest and the whole village comes out on the exact day that the male is due back from South Africa and they're all waiting for him and so is she. And he comes back into the nest and they raise a new brood of chicks every year. One year he was six days late and everybody was extremely worried. Who knows what ordeals he'd had to go through, but six days later he turned up and there they are together in love in the nest. So, so we, you talked a little bit about stories and thank you for sharing that, that story for me. I, I was, I knew I can get one more out. Um, so we have, I mean, you talked about a few of the stories that are in the book, but you also talked about there's some like, what's, what's next, you know, what to do. So can you talk a little bit more about that and what that looks like? Absolutely. I mean, one thing is it's very nice that people are not using plastic straws these days because they've seen pictures of turtles with a plastic straw stuck up their nose and they've seen all this plastic problem. And now, but the thing is this, in the book, I, for example, in part one, I talk about a little fish called the wrasse. It's a tiny little fish. 
And this little fish is also known as the teeth cleaning fish. And that's because, and you can see this if you go to National Geographic videos or something, big fish line up in the ocean just the way you would at your dental hygienist's office. Mm -hmm. And the little wrasse comes and they open their mouths and the wrasse goes in and cleans out the debris between their teeth. Tiny little fish from New Zealand. That little fish can recognize herself in a mirror. And that is considered the gold standard of animal intelligence. Mm -hmm. Chimpanzees do it. Tribal peoples don't always do it. They think they're being attacked when they see themselves in the mirror and they go after that mirror. So it is an intelligence test that humans have passed, chimpanzees, elephants have passed. The little fish sees her reflection in the mirror and she starts preening, just like Kim Kardashian. She starts, you know, working. Thank God she doesn't have a camera and can't take selfies. But I say... These little intelligences out there, if you want to save the ocean and you want to save sea life in the ocean, it's not just plastic straws. The number one thing is don't eat fish mm. because the discarded fishing net from the trawlers, the fishing hooks and the line, the plastic filament, all that stuff is the number one destroyer of turtles, dolphins all ocean life. So if you want to save the oceans, please remember there's a person inside that little thinned being or that large shelled being. There's somebody in there. It's not something and don't eat them. And one of the things that in relations to everything and some solutions and some progress that I'm seeing, especially in the news um, the last couple of months is the fashion industry. And um, so I want to talk a little bit about that. Some of the progress that we've been seeing, maybe some innovations that you might have noticed. Like, what can you tell us about what's happening right now in that, in that industry? It is so exciting. It's just so incredibly exciting. I do talk in the book about cows, for example, because of leather. Of course, the number one thing is leather. And most leather comes from India. And the ordeal of the cows in India is extraordinary. It's, it's heartbreaking. But cows communicate using subtle facial language. If they solve a problem, they have a little eureka moment where they jump up with excitement. They will even hide a calf in some cases if they can, if their experience tells them that the farmer will take the calf away. So they're extraordinary. All animals, of course, are. We've done these undercover videos inside crocodile farms in Zimbabwe, alligator farms in Florida, in Texas, where they're raised in abject filth and they're killed in abysmally cruel ways. So we need to get away from all that. Being vegan doesn't just mean not putting animals in your mouth. It means not putting animals on your back or on your feet and all that stuff. Today, we have the luxury of having pineapple leather, grape leather, apple leather. Somebody was telling me about a mulberry leather just the other day. We have all natural fibers that we can use. We've always had cotton and corduroy and satin and so on. But now we have tassel, we have um, metallic threads that are used. We have lightweight synthetics. 
that don't get damp and weigh you down if you're climbing Everest or wherever you're going in them for a hike. We have fabulous fabrics and they're all, even the ones that are synthetic, are better for the environment. There have been studies now that show, you know, you throw a leather coat outside your window, come back 20 years later, it's still there because it's not natural. It was treated with harsh chemicals called mortants to stop it from decomposing. So all the things that go into even synthetic have less energy use, are less environmentally problematic than fur and leather and exotic skins. But you don't have to have anything like that. You can use natural things, um, jute, hemp, who knows what, cotton and so on. And you can use these new wonderful fruit leathers, which are coming out now for skirts and belts and everything imaginable. And I love Tom Tom's shoes are my favorite in the world. <laughs> so wow, okay. So we we talked about fashion. We talked about let's talk a little bit about food um, and and what's going on in in that space because obviously everything that's um, that's being created like with Impossible and Beyond and a lot of the clean meats as well. Um, it's it's lessening the amount of um, the need to slaughter animals for for the food that people eat. But what are what are your thoughts on on those innovations um, as as a whole? Well, they're they're phenomenal. I mean, forty years ago when Peter started, we never would have imagined. We had such an uphill climb, and you could go to the store and there was really nothing unless you knew how to cook vegetables and you ate fruits and you could buy nuts and grains, but there was nothing that was a taster-like. Um, you could go to a co-op and get a powder that was soy and then mix it with water and whisk it up and try to make a soy milk. There was no, what we have today is almond cheese, rice cheese, you know, soy cheese, all these things, Miyoko's cheeses. Um, there were no fake hot dogs or, or burgers. So Beyond is a dream come true because Beyond is really a meat eater's vegan burger. And I really challenge anybody to serve a meat eater one and not tell them and have them guess that it wasn't meat. They can't do it. Um, but we have people now, wonderful, innovative companies that are coming up with fake fish and um, caviar that's the same as caviar. And I've tasted it. I told you my father and I ate our way through the animal kingdom. We ate caviar. So caviar tastes almost identical to it. There's sometimes a little bit of a taste difference. Um, you have everything you could ever want. There's a restaurant that's serving um, fake eel, and there is even something like fake blowfish. You think, who wants that? But really, if you want it, you can have it. There's a Japanese restaurant near our um, headquarters in Norfolk that serves a sushi with fake lobster or fake crab. Uh, they, they have fake salmon steaks. So people say, well, why do you want fake? Well, I want fake because I grew up with those tastes and I'm used to them and I like them. My taste buds think they're okay, but I certainly don't want to give a plug nickel to anybody to slit an animal's throat, mm -hmm. hang them up on a hook, 
put them in the transport truck, have them afraid, clip their ears, cut off their beaks, and all the other ghastly things that are done that don't make us a civilized uh, species at all. Mm -hmm. And and in your in your journeys, have you come across any um, any fake liver? <laughs> you know, I that's an excellent question. I haven't gone looking for it, but I'll tell you this: I grew up. A large part of my childhood was in England, and there is a favorite, what they call a working man's pie. It comes in a tin, has a beautiful flaky pastry crust, and it was steak and kidney. And I liked kidneys too. And every night when I got home from work, I would stop at the corner store and get, it's called a Frey Bentos steak and kidney pie. And I would put it in the oven. Our Peter UK has met with Frey Bentos and they have just come out with a new vegan pie. And when we met, they said, well, we can do fake steak, but we can't do fake kidney. And Dawn, who works for us, said, you can do kidney bean, can't you? So this is the Frey Bentos steak and kidney bean pie that has just come on the UK market. And you know, they're serving a fake chicken at KFC in the UK. I just had that when I was over there before the pandemic hit. Great stuff. Um, and, and just speaking of the UK for a little bit, I mean, I, part of what I do is I follow the news daily and there always seems to be things coming out in the UK. And I just make up that it's, an, it's like a test market to see eventually what they want to do in the US. But um, what what are your thoughts on in terms of the growth of these restaurants adopting these alternatives in the United States? What do you see as the, poten the potential and how long before we start seeing, you know, the same, you know, turn around that Australia and Germany and the UK have in the US? Oh, it's coming. It's coming. I think you're right that the UK, it's a little island. So it is like an ideal test market. And you can see if it flies there and then you can spread it out. And of course, KFC in Atlanta test marketed the um, vegan chicken and it sold out in five hours. And they have a couple of other states that are test marketing it now. And, you know, you can go to Chipotle and get sofritas, which is that fake pork, which is I think it's phenomenal. Um, but everywhere you go now, you're getting pizza chains are converting to vegan cheese. I mean, it's not the healthiest thing to have any cheese, vegan or not, but it's it, it's there. It's everywhere. Uno's, I think we just saw in the video, has just agreed to have you know, fake uh, meats and um, vegan cheese. So I am feeling extremely optimistic with the pandemic. Mm. You know, people went to the store and they started to hoard and they knew just instantly you cannot hoard dairy milk. It goes bad or dairy. So they got plant milk. And it might have been the first time in their lives. They've got shelves and shelves full of almond milk, macadamia milk, rice milk, soy milk, chocolate flavored, you name it. So all this is happening. And doctors are more and more saying, if you're worried about diabetes or heart disease or cancers, you need to go vegan. You need to get the meat and the dairy. Most important, get the dairy out of your diet. And there's no excuse nowadays 
You just wander into any supermarket, even in a small town in the middle of nowhere, and you will find in the freezer case, in the refrigerator case, on the shelves, a wealth, a plethora of ingredients and ready-made meals. You just can't go wrong. And well, I just want to take a pause. Anybody who's watching or listening, if you have a question, we're taking questions throughout the entire time. So feel free to put your questions. I see a couple of people, you know, you know, showing their love and their appreciation for for PETA. Yay, PETA. <laughs> so so now I want to you did mention the the pandemic. Um one of the things that's always crossed my mind is what does activism look like now? You know, with the majority of the states being under quarantine lockdown and um, kind of eliminating um, a lot of the gatherings that would normally happen, like on a Saturday and for, you know, Cube to Truth and all those things. What are some, advi- what's some advice you have for people out there, how they could still stay active and show their support for the animals? It's vital. It absolutely is. So wherever you go, wear your proper mask or make one yourself, easy peasy. You know, with a magic marker, you can put your message on your mask and you're going to be wearing it all the time. Everybody can read it. Um, We say, please also, if you've got a window, stick a sign in it and just say, you know, love all, including the animals, go vegan or whatever you want to say, stop animal experiments. We just had a drive-by demonstration day before yesterday at the National Institutes of Health. So you can demonstrate, you can stay in your car, you can plaster signs on your car. Um, If you're going anywhere, we drove around NIH and we drove around this hideous monkey experimenter's house where she shocks monkeys. You can use a lawn sign. Um, One of the things we ask people to do is please use social as much as possible. Educate while you're on social. Share good movies with people. Share um, interesting videos from the PETA site or other animal rights site with others. Um, If you have to say, look, I'll give you a dollar when we come out of the pandemic for everyone you watch, (laughs) do that. Um, I think telling people about vegan foods and clothing and what to buy, sharing good news about animals, buying my book and reading it to somebody, There are so many things that you can do. Call into radio shows, submit letters to the editor, write an opinion piece, you know, do do things. You'll find them. We've got a huge list on our website of pandemic activism tips. And I mean, there's there's so many things I want to talk to you about. So let's go back to the book for a moment. So you mentioned that there's stories um, of um, different animals as well as solutions. So what can what are some of the topics in the in the book that you'd want to go over to let people know that are inside of it um, specifically? Well, I mean, the easy ones are everybody eats, everybody dresses, although some people, I are you in your pajama bottoms there? Right? <laughs> Let's see. Um, everybody wears clothes. Um, and shoes. Everybody washes their hair, even if they can't get it cut or colored now. So you have all these things that you do. And every day you buy stuff. It's how we entertain ourselves. It's the way we deal with pests. You know, my heart goes out to them because they're just little individuals like ourselves who are given a bad rap. 
and we can't, we have to tell other people, don't use poisons, don't use glue traps, you know, leave them in peace. There are, there are humane ways to deal with any inconvenience. And that's usually all it is. So pest control, entertainment, obviously one of the good things about the pandemic, and there are quite a lot, is that we um, are not dissecting in schools because mm. schools are virtual now. Everybody's homeschooling or whatever they're doing. And that means that frogs aren't being taken out of ponds and lakes and streams and cut up in the classroom. There are no little boys dangling frog guts in front of little girls' faces. And there are no children inhaling formaldehyde. But when that's over, one of the things, if you're a child, a teacher, or you know a teacher, or you've got a grandchild, is make sure they know the options, the alternatives, and their right not to cut up a cat's eye or a frog or any other animal. There are sophisticated things they can do. Look for the labels on products and on clothing too, because you might think something is leather and you find out it's grape leather if you read that label. Don't buy anything that's made of wool. And if you think, oh, that sounds extreme, it isn't. We've been in all these shearing sheds and these gentle, beautiful sheep who I talk about in the book, they can recognize people and other sheep from photographs. That's how wonderful they are. Mm. They are beaten from one side of the shed to the other with metal clippers by the people who shear them. It's not just a haircut. So don't buy wool, find a wool alternative. Alternatives, kind things for everything that's cruel, and inadvertently, you may be supporting something that you don't want to. So get the lists of cruelty-free products. We've got 4,200 companies now that don't test on animals, don't use animal ingredients like placenta or hydrolyzed animal protein. These are slaughterhouse ingredients. You don't want to put that on your face, you know? So all those things are very, very important and support legislative initiatives, talk to your representatives and go on the website and see please who we need you to contact now. The Iditarod sponsors, the people who are doing awful things to animals in circuses, please get in touch with us, look at the website, see where the action alerts are needed and join the army of the kind. And, and while you were speaking, a few people did leave their comments in here. We have one from Susan Hargraves. Um, Ingrid is fantastic. The undercover work and unapologetic direct voices for all the animals not to be harmed since 1982. And um, yes, yeah, Susan is, you know, when I first got into being vegan, she really helped me out, learn more about animal advocacy. So I'm glad she's in here watching as well. I owe Susan a great debt because I was speaking somewhere in Florida and there were uh, stray cats who were in terrible condition behind the hotel. And I was leaving the next morning and the hotel would not help them. And I was able to feed them. I was looking for someone to help. Susan Hargraves, thank you. She came out, she caught them all up, she got them sterilized and she found them homes. Mm. And one of those cats is living with her today. 
Oh wow, wow, wow! And 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 her her organization's Animal Hero Kids. So I just want to say a good, a good shout out to Susan, and I'm glad you you were able to connect with her. Um, so yeah, so let's as we're winding down, I want us if any, of course, if anybody has any questions or any comments, feel free to leave them in the comments section, and we will be posting them on, on here. So you mentioned schools and students kind of being out and the way of life changing and shifting. One of the things I do want to discuss is what advice do you have for parents um, who may have a child that, because right now the internet, you can pretty much find anything, finds a video from Peter, finds a video that kind of shows them, you know, a different world that's out there. And now they want to go vegan, but the parent doesn't know what to do. Um, maybe they, maybe they be, they might be open, but they just don't know what to do. What would you suggest? Well, if the parents have any doubt about how healthy it is to go vegan for the child, there should be no doubt. There is the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, and I think you have Dr. Neil Barnard speaking tomorrow night. And um, that the PCRM.org has all sorts of advice for parents. At PETA, we have every recipe that you could ever want. And there are other websites um, like goveg.com that have tons of recipes, some easy, some you know exotic, whatever you want. You can have a fake little dinner party for your children if you like. Um, I think the thing to do is to find out what they like to eat and then try to gradually show them they can eat things like that, but be vegan. There are wonderful books online, and I'm sure that Susan Hargrave's organization, Heroes for, for Animals, that she, that she knows, and on her website too, will have a list of kids' books. We give away kids' books on our spay and neuter clinics to the kids of um, parents who bring their animals in to be fixed, and the kids adore them. There are stories about you know a turkey who got away from Thanksgiving dinner and ran, 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 and there are wonderful, appreciative things. There are fabulous rescue videos on our website and videos about a chicken who runs up to greet the child coming home from the school bus every day. Things that just warm your heart, make you see that we are all in a great orchestra of life. Everybody plays a different instrument maybe, but we're all in this together. We're all brothers and sisters under the skin. So, you know, Parents have got, the pandemic will be over before they've had time to do everything they need to do with those children. And as you mentioned, you have different types of um, PETA organizations. You have PETA, PETA 2, PETA Kids. So what exactly is um, PETA 2? Well, PETA 2 has just been folded into PETA SOS, which is about stopping supremacism or speciesism. But it's really for the teens to 19 or so. Um, and then some college students are involved in it. And it's about activism for the animals. And they do all sorts of things. When the colleges and the schools were open, they would chalk animal rights messages on the sidewalk. They would work with their cafeterias to make sure there were vegan entrees or vegan meals, vegan meal programs. They would table on their campuses. Now they do it virtually. So they have virtual conferences and what have you. But you mentioned other, our affiliates. We have Peter India. And one of the videos on our website is with all the hotels closed in places like Mumbai and Delhi, you see the monkeys 
taking back their ancestral homes that were seized in order to build those hotels and jumping in the swimming pools and swimming and swimming and climbing up. You know, you see um, wonderful things you can show kids and adults, which is elk coming back to the Oregon coast and bathing between the sandbars and the coast. You see goats in England. We've got Peter UK walking down the streets. <laughs> Deer, I just came up past the cathedral in Washington tonight, walking home. And there was a deer on the lacrosse court, just walking around, having a look. And I think animals are able during this quiet time to reclaim some of what is rightfully theirs. Mm. So with rodeos canceled, horse races canceled, dog shows canceled, running of the bulls canceled, there is much to celebrate. So um, for wrapping up, we did have a comment in here about the mask. It seems like the masks are super popular. Susan, again, are all the masks sold out? How, how popular are these items? And can people want to expect this? Go on. The, the mask is so popular, it's now being sold out twice. And wow. I think we have just got, I hope I'm right, but I think we have just got some more masks in. So do, and we've got jigsaw puzzles too with all the animals, the pig, the cow, the chicken, the pangolin, all of them holding signs saying closed live markets. And we now have a costume, which we are launching. You know, we are doing a demonstration standing six feet apart mm -hmm. outside the closed slaughterhouses. And we now have a new costume. We have done the Grim Reaper and we have done uh, some wonderful man cycled in South Dakota in the snow to stand outside Smithfield when it closed with a sign saying, keep it closed permanently, stop mm. pandemics. You know, they're related to the meat markets, to the exotic animal markets for medicine and for clothing. And so, you know, we're just saying, you can demonstrate visual virtually on your own Instagram uh, account or your Facebook or whatever, do that too. So in closing, are, is there anything that we didn't address that you definitely want to make sure you, um, you, you discuss during this conversation? Thank you for asking that. I mean, there's one thing that's very dear to my heart, and that is, please, 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 if you're watching, don't just watch, do, because it is going to take all of us. We have to grow this movement. We have to teach others. When we can, we need to feed others. We need to take them shopping. We need to cook for them, or if we can take them out somewhere when this is over to a vegan restaurant, show them what's out there. Look after them. If there's a baby shower, you know, we're going to buy that baby something cruelty free. If there's a birthday, if it's your birthday and someone says, what do you want? You can do that now. You say, please, I'd like you to go vegan for two weeks for me, for my birthday. You ask me what I want, that's what I want. Um, these, we have to grow the movement. We cannot hope. Hope is grand, but action is what it takes. And that means overcoming any hesitation, embarrassment, anything else, and saying the truth, talking about the facts, opening people's eyes, opening their hearts, opening their minds, and just doing until we have made a vegan world or close to it, because that is everything. It's not enough to wish. Wishing doesn't get us anywhere. 
It's what are you doing as an individual? Because you count. You have the power of the past, and that is worth everything. And your voice and your typing fingers, use them. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come onto our virtual expo, to share your thoughts, to talk about your book. And, and the last thing I want is for you to tell everybody once again about your book, where they can get it and what, and what they can expect. There's the book. <laughs> it's called Animal Kind, Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and revolutionary new ways to show them compassion. Lots of happy stories, lots of anecdotes, lots of things that I hope will make your jaw drop as to how fabulous animals are, and then lots of new ideas about what to do. Available on Amazon, anywhere you get your books these days since the stores are closed, and available at peter.org too, and lots of tips on peter.org too. So anything you want, even a vegan mentor, we are here for you. Spotlight commencing in five, four, three, two, one. I'm Joel Corbello from Bomb Cookies, and we're with SoFlo Vegans. Today we're going to do our signature house cookie. Uh, we call it the double chocolate bomb. Um, we call it the double chocolate bomb because it's got pretty much a little bit of everything. Uh, we sourced these really cool vegan sprinkles from a company called Fancy Sprinkles. And we call them, you know, bomb sprinkles, vice sprinkles, because they remind me of those 80s colors. As you can see, the teal, the pink, the white. Bomb cookie uh, is the, I tell people, the ultimate cookie experience. You know, in, in, in one purchase of our cookies, one bite, you just contributed to making our planet and our community a better place. We source nothing but the greatest ingredients, high organic, high quality, sustainable, always when available, non-GMO, our, all our cookies are plant-based. One of the things that makes this cookie very special is the amount of chocolate we use. Uh, we have uh, chocolate ganache. We use two different kinds of chocolate sourced from Verona. Uh, we have our 52% and our 61%. Uh, we use organic sugar, which is what makes it completely 100% plant-based. A lot of people are not aware that the sugar that people use, regular cane sugar, is milled through a bone. Therefore, it's not plant-based. For now, we're putting in Earth Balance um, plant-based butter. Uh, we always start by whipping the sugar, the butter, and afterwards, we're gonna add the uh, almond milk. One of the binding agents that makes this cookie, um, puts it together, is the tapioca flour that we use, very important. Give it a quick mix for about a minute. Making cookies is more than just the recipe. It's, it's how you put everything together. Um, making sure that the butter and the sugar is not over whipped. Overworking the batter is what makes a soupy cookie. Making very flat. And you know, why did we start a cookie company in the middle of the pandemic? We, we thought about it very hard. There were other choices, other things that we wanted to venture in. But we realized, you know, other, other restaurant concepts are high in inventory. You have all this product that you're hoping to sell. What if you don't sell it? What if it's spoiled? Cookies um, have a higher shelf life. Uh, we make our cookies in small batches. We don't make huge batches. We don't freeze our cookies all the time. We don't, um, we focus on 
quality. We focus on using the best ingredients so that the end result is the ultimate cookie experience. You can have the very same experience as a Cinnamon Toast Crunch. The difference is we're not buying Cinnamon Toast Crunch at the supermarket. We're going to make it. Instead of buying Fruit Loops, we're going to figure a way of making it. You know, we source vegan marshmallows. We source butterscotch uh, chocolate chips. We source vegan M&Ms. So all these things exist. They just cost a little more. Yes, they cost more, but it's worth it. It's worth it. It really is. What I like to do, I always make sure that whatever's in the bottom gets stirred as well. I put in the vanilla and the almond milk. Now, the very last thing we add is the 52% and 61%. What kind of chocolate are you using? I am using Verona chocolate. Uh, Verona chocolate is like the Rolls Royce of chocolate. It's a very... <laughs> One of the special things about this chocolate is um, knowing where your chocolate comes from and how it's processed. They are also one of the few that have uh, plant-based chocolate. Unfortunately, a lot of the chocolate in the world is processed with dairy or eggs. Um, but we avoid that. And um, they also have a fair trade, GMO-free, which is very important to us. The sheet tray is what we're gonna bake our cookies on. We always do parchment paper. Uh, we bake most of our cookies at 350 degrees. Uh, very dry um, oven. No fan at the moment. Spray a little bit so it doesn't stick. Oh, that's how you get the same consistency. Yep. Interesting. We ball it up like that, just slightly flatten it. We're about to go in the oven now at 350. Watch, follow me. So we'll ball, go in there for about 15 minutes and we'll turn the cooking around every six minutes. We're located on 1831 Ponce de Leon, Coral Gables, Florida. Uh, it's on the corner of Mallorca right across from the Target. We are in the back. Uh, we are open Tuesday through Saturday from 12 to 8 p.m. We do take, have a cutoff time for next day delivery, uh, 3 p.m. Uh, DM on Instagram, follow us at bomb underscore cookie underscore or Facebook uh, bomb cookies. You can place your order or call me at 786-556-5639 and you can place your order and we'll be happy to take care of you. Uh, we also offer gluten-free and keto-friendly cookies upon request. And uh, please check us out again on Instagram and follow us. To watch the full version of this video, go to youtube.com slash SoFloVegans or become a member at SoFloVegans.com. And we want to thank you so much for listening to another episode of the SoFlow Vegans podcast and thank our sponsors, Hungry Harvest. Make sure you go to HungryHarvest.net and use code SoFlow to get 50% off. 
Thank Ingrid Newkirk and PETA. Another shout out for them for, for supporting our expo and, and supporting our community. So thank you to both Ingrid Newkirk and PETA. And if you liked what you heard, subscribe. Go to soulfulvegans.com slash podcast. Listen to all of our past episodes. Subscribe wherever good podcasts are found. And we will see you next time. Peace. Today's episode was produced and edited by Sean Russell. Alba Mendes Chong is our media coordinator. Go to soflowvegans.com slash podcast to subscribe on Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio and other places where podcasts are found. Goodbye.